0: A show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon
1: Gong. All right, let me get into this introduction here. So I read a lot of whack books in general, and especially since starting Program to Chill. I was looking at the books I read this year and last year, and other than some excellent novels that I read, I have been reading more and more esoteric garbage. The nature of this research involves panning for gold sort of activities when it comes to reading, and I'm increasingly reading just like the weirdest self-published garbage because the person who wrote it is like an Air Force general or a magician or something. The point of this is that I don't often get the occasion to read a really well-crafted history book. It doesn't happen that often. So when it happens, I really savor it, right? And the book that I'm here to discuss, with the author no less, is Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh. And it is not just a well-crafted work of history. I say this with no hyperbole, it is the best book I read this year. It should probably come as no surprise to those of you who have read this book already, or those of you on Twitter who have seen Bill or Boltzmann Booty, or myself, who have already hailed the book. But... As they have already pointed out, it isn't just great history. I contend to you that Aberration is as readable as a novel. Like a good novel. (laughs) Aberration reminds me in some ways of Moby Dick. Not stylistically or even thematically necessarily, except in general, like the pursuit of this elusive, ineluctable truth. Stylistically, Aberration reminds me of Infinite Jest and no i'm not talking about like the meme version of the what people think the book is like but like infinite Jest as such how it creates this almost extended universe of characters and details and entire stories and footnotes how it draws you in through these endlessly fascinating small details which just hook into you aberration is erudite it's provocative like i can't stop talking about it cuz i enjoyed it so much since I'm already known as like the weirdo in my family, I've considered <laughs> getting it as a gift for Christmas for some people.
0: <laughs>
1: Other than being, for my money, the definitive work on Timothy McVeigh, it is functionally also an amazing reference point for a host of different topics. Like it is an, a great overview of American assassins and mass shooters. Not, you know, obviously not complete, but like it hits all, all the big ones. Uh, It is a great overview of the world, the dark world of U.S. militias and the broader Patriot movement. And in order to contextualize Timothy McVeigh's interest in UFOs, the book gives you one of the best summaries of ufology that I've read. To contextualize some of McVeigh's claims about mind control, the book gives you what I know for a fact is the best overview of The field of mind control, since Walter Bowers' Operation Mind Control or Joseph D. Marx's In Search of the Manchurian Candidate. I know that because I've read (laughs) most of the uh, field in terms of like the books about mind control, and like, yeah, I'm certain because I've looked, waded into several of these fields, and I found aberration was actually talking about really niche things that I hadn't heard anyone point out or hadn't heard of at all. Which I thought was amazing. There are times when you read Aberration where you will literally put the book down because you can't stop laughing. Or at least I did. Granted, like it's, you know, it's not (laughs) funny all the time. It's actually very bleak. Uh, There are times when you will read the book and feel deeply, almost to the point of tears, for various people throughout the story. There are times when you will have to put the book down because you read some facts that disturbed you too much, or at least that was my experience. You know, the book goes through the field of implants and extremely low-frequency weaponry. You know, that was a section that just really creeped me out, (laughs) and made me (laughs) go take a walk outside. (laughs) Uh, There are portions which caused me to text people with, like, you won't believe what I just read, or, like, "I I cannot handle what this book is saying you know, things of this nature. Even with the epilogue, unlike most books, which you can almost skip the epilogue because it may not have, I don't know, extremely crucial information that goes as hard as the rest of the book. Not aberration. (laughs) Even the epilogue is just like gripping. So literally the best book I read this year, enough of my blathering. Please allow me to introduce Dr. Wendy Painting, who asked me to call her Wendy. Wendy told me to go easy on all the credentials, but folks, she's got them. In case I didn't make it clear, Wendy Painting wrote the book, Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh. How are you doing today, Wendy?
2: Hi, I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm great.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. I'm very excited. Because it's my understanding that you have not done any interviews since 2016. Is that right?
2: Yeah. No, I haven't. Um, I haven't been interviewed since 2016, and uh, it just wasn't time. Or I felt for a long time like anything I had to say was in the book, you know. And anything else I had, I didn't. It wasn't time for me to talk about. And um, <laughs> it's funny because I'll get a lot of emails um from people and it's asking me questions and it's clear that they haven't read the book and (laughs) so anyways my position my position is like well everything I had to say was was in the is in the book and I was always working on more stuff and the and the second book but um but now it's come to the point where you know I I have I want to talk about the book and I I didn't even know and first of all I want to thank you for I, the nice things you just said mm-hmm. about the book. I, I don't even like, it's such a high compliment to me. I, I don't, I don't know how to process it, but thank you. Um, it I'm amazed. Uh, first of all, I didn't even know that people read the book like from 2016 until maybe like about, about a year and a half ago, he starts telling me, Oh, there's people on Twitter reading your book. And I, I'm not, you know I didn't like Twitter it was just scary to me and I'm like okay well, you know whatever fine like two people read the book and he keeps telling me this and then uh and then my friend at home she's she's telling me and she's a fan of your show and she's like people on Twitter are talking about your book
0: hmm.
2: and then my good good friend Roger Charles who who also wrote an excellent book on the bombing plot itself he had passed away and at that point i guess i was just really sad i mean i was devastated and i like, went on twitter you know just just see what richard was talking about and and i and i saw like all these people had been reading aberration and i was just bored like so I, I, all that to say sorry for the meandering but like i didn't even know people read this book and then to go on and see people saying like these really amazing things it it was just crazy to me you know I I wanted what I wanted for aberration was for it to kind of you know live on its own for it to without me like if I were to disappear tomorrow I I wanted it to have a life and I see that you know it, it does now anyways that's all I have to say about that but I'm so appreciative of of you anyone that that has even taken the time to read such a monstrously long book
1: (laughs) yeah no it's funny because like I feel like at first it really was just like two people like basically Bill and (laughs) Bootsman Booty as far as I know and then they got several people and then they got so now it really is like a small group and like
0: that's amazing
1: even more even more people should read it and I do know what you mean where it's like once you're done working on such a colossal book, it it's like okay, well, everything's in that book. Just read the book. So I get like, <laughs> you know, just like pointing people to the work, right?
2: Yeah, it's hard to answer us well, and and as you're going to find out as we go through this conversation, it's extremely hard to answer a simple question in a simple manner because of the complexity, and and it's like, mm-hmm. just read the book because yeah, because it's too much. So yeah, I don't, I don't
1: know. No, that's a, that's a good point we should say for the listeners. So we have, uh, Wendy and I spent a fair amount of time on this outline in order to try to make it comprehensible. However, if anything doesn't work or it doesn't make sense, I would just, you know, like she said, check out the book, right? Because look, if, if I say anything wrong in the book, it's probably in there. And assuming it's not a typo, it's probably correct, right?
2: Yeah. And the, the typos that mm-hmm. um, I've seen, they're not information. So the information, and I guess we're going to talk about later, you know, mm-hmm. there's, a, <laughs> there's a couple versions of the book floating around, but the information is always the same. It's so... Yeah, any information I have is, or you know, the information presented is is in it's in the book. It's correct, and there's a lot of like backstories. Like you, you know, if during this conversation we're talking about, well, I'm just gonna say PatCon. We're gonna talk about PatCon probably here, but you know, it'll be explained further, probably exhaustively to the point. Where you want to bang your head against the wall in the book itself, <laughs> but like imagine you know in real life, you know you're you're at the bar or you're you know you're hanging out, and, and and you're not hanging out with Boltzmann or Bill, you know you're, or some of these other cool great researchers that have been coming up now, you're talking to just like normal people that their whole understanding of Tim they or the bombing is you know a Rachel Maddow special five years ago or whatever hmm: It gets to a point where you just don't talk about it anymore because of the complexity. I mean, by saying "you," I mean me," mm-hmm. it had gotten to the point where I just don't even know how to talk about it with people that haven't read the book.
1: That's very relatable. There are times when I'm trying to explain to, say like <laughs> a family member, what on earth I'm doing an episode on, and I spend most of the time <laughs> explaining the context. To get to the part where I'm explaining the hook of the episode.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh. And you're dealing with multiple subjects.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's funny too, because, you know, for instance, Andrea Strassmeyer, right? Yes. <laughs> I did a whole episode with Bill and Boltzmann Booty. Yes. Listeners can check that out. But like, we barely even touch on him in this episode, right? Or at least I don't anticipate that. I don't think we talk about him at length.
2: You know, no, 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 he'll pop up like now and again, but yeah, no, they and they covered that. But they, I did listen to that episode, um, and it was great. And, uh, yeah, we probably won't get too far into Strassmeyer,
1: <laughs> but that just shows, like, you know, with every, like you said, every single character in this story, there's like a oh. long backstory and it's all freaking weird and complicated. <laughs> It touches it into every single other aspect of the thing in complicated ways.
0: That's
2: why, well, that's why there's a second book mm-hmm. that, that it's not out yet. A large, I would say it's 80% done, but uh, that's just in its rawest form because there's still more to be done. But but, anyways, all of that is because in the process of this book, as you said, there's all these characters. They have deserve not deserve I don't know if they deserve it but they they're <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
2: you can write books about each and every one of these characters by themselves so that second book it's it's not the McVeigh show he's in there of course because he kind of is a, a tying thread but it's not the McVeigh show it's like oh here's the mini biography and the, the whole backstory and life of uh, Jack Oliphant or Roger Moore or Johnny Bangerter um you know it's it's what i call the runoff where it's these weird characters that popped up in the book that i just did not have room to um or the structure to be able to like include in aberration
1: Mm, yeah so up front i would like to explain to listeners any listeners out there who might be on the young side Or for those who don't know what the Oklahoma City bombing was, right? the TLDR short version is that on April 19th, 1995, a bomb went off at a federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people and injuring somewhere like 700 more. The official narrative is that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols perpetrated the attack alone. For those who want to hear more of the basics, like I said, there's, and there's Bill and Boltzmann Booty where, you know, the three of us talk about Andrea Strassmeyer. That's a program to chill episode. I know for instance, you appeared on Ed Opperman. I think, well, Richard Booth also appeared on Ed Opperman. So like, there's definitely, uh, other episodes to discuss, like, like more of like a focused on the event itself, right?
2: yeah yeah the right and we'll get into some of that but um I would just uh, so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel I would just refer to to them um and I know I think Bill and Boltzmann have both done other interviews with other people I'd
0: mm-hmm.
2: blanking out on that but yeah you could you can find that I also did like back in 2016 the the Ed Opperman interview I did probably did get a little more into the nuts and bolts. Um, mm-hmm. There was one with a guy named Popeye down the rabbit hole. Um, that one I I, I liked. Um, that one probably went into the nuts and bolts a little bit.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. So Wendy and I were discussing how to approach this episode, because on the one hand, this episode could not necessarily cannot approach aberration the book in terms of sheer volume of information. On the flip side, I know uh, that most of my listeners have not yet read the book. So what we decided to do was to discuss in broad terms some of the framework that the book takes and to zero in on a few of those salient nuggets that you won't read about in, oh, I don't know, upcoming books on the Oklahoma City bombing.
2: It's no Jeffrey but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> no, for sure. I can't believe it's him of all people.
0: <laughs> um, yeah.
1: So then later on after that, we're going to discuss some of Wendy's new discoveries, her experiences writing aberration, some of the issues with her publisher,
2: and I, I want to say like that stuff, I have never, I, I've, I've talked about it on Twitter a little now, but mm-hmm. I, back when I did do interviews, I never would bring in it, extra stuff. So,
1: oh yeah. So, yeah, some extra juicy morsels, new information, everyone. So get excited. <laughs> um, now, for those who haven't read the book and those who have and can't get enough of the book. Let's get into the secret lives of Timothy McVeigh. (laughs) Now, one of the things I most appreciated in Aberration, because I will say when I did the interview with Bill and Boltzmann Booty, like it's like I was grasping at a way to think of this and I didn't have the framework. I hadn't read the book yet at the time I did that interview. And once I was like in the book, reading it, I was like, Oh, that, that really is like the only way to wrap your mind around this, because basically you create five archetypes or uh, your term is narrative types, which I think is better uh, to describe the many different narratives about Timothy McVeigh.
2: Yeah, and through those, able to introduce information, I think, like, or at least start to make sense of information.
1: Mm mm-hmm. And uh, what are the different uh, narrative types?
2: So before I get into the, there's five different narrative types, although you could fold one of them into the other. So there's four to five narrative types, is what I call them in the book, uh, frameworks. You could also call them schemas. But as you explained, you know, Tim McVeigh, April 19th, 1995, there is an explosion at the Murrah, Federal building in downtown Oklahoma City and shortly after a man named Timothy McVeigh is arrested so through the years and he he becomes the um he, he is executed for this eventually so Tim McVeigh uh, appears on the cover of I believe it was time as the face of terror and um after and through the years he's depicted as it and this is publicly depicted as a demon, a lone wolf, um, a CIA agent, an FBI informant, a Patsy, a government guinea pig, um, a war hero, a loser, a loner, a gun nut, a conspiracy theorist. He, he comes to take on all of these uh, archetypes, but there's, then there's stories. And the first story, and this is the least complex, and the most widely known, I call it the lone wolf.
0: Hmm.
2: And it's, it's the one that, as I said, it's the least complex, most widely known. Um, it's the one officially endorsed by the US government and often, most often appears in the media. And in this story, Tim McVeigh alone, motivated by his anger at what happened at Waco in 1993, which we, get, we can talk more about Waco later if you want, but he's, he's so mad about Waco, he's just burning with rage about what happens at Waco that he conceives of, um, plans, and executes this bombing plot. He alone drives up to the Murrah Federal Building on the morning of April 19, 1995. He alone detonates a bomb And he alone exits the city, at which point he's arrested. And so I call him the lone wolf, even in the government's and the media's official story. You know, he has help. He has minimal help as far as gathering um, materials for the bomb and even constructing the bomb um, with his former army buddy, Terry Nichols.
0: Mm. Um,
2: But. Terry Nichols in this story does so really under duress fearing for the life of his family because Tim McVeigh threatens him like basically you're going to help me get this bomb stuff together but but in the lone wolf story it's just Tim McVeigh it's it's it is the Tim McVeigh show it's him and him alone and so in the lone wolf story is all of the details of the plot and the identities Motives and movements of the perpetrators being Tim McVeigh are known. Um, Additional co-conspirators don't exist. (laughs) And as promised, no stone has been left unturned um, in the investigation. No mystery remains. And so now (laughs) you achieve narrative closure. It's just case, case closed.
1: Case closed. End of the parallax view movie.
2: Yeah, that's it. And this story is it originated with multiple individuals and institutions, including and people, including well, he's a he's an individual, including McVeigh himself. Um, And it's the one that's I think most permanently like etched into, if there's such a thing as national memory or public memory. Even because it's, I'm sure, mm-hmm. even internationally, this would be the most known. And so, there's two, just real quick, as far as the Lone Wolf story, where case closed, just to McBay. There's two really defining works, and and one of them is, and this one is, to me, it's I have to laugh about it now. The most enduring one, and the one that you see cited in both government reports about terrorism um, and news articles in specials that you know come out in mainstream media every April 19th and and even in um, millions of academic works um, is the book that McVeigh himself narrated to two Buffalo journalists and they wrote the authorized version of of Tim and it's called American Terrorist,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that's the one that like you just you'll you'll hear cited, and it's kind of like it's it's often it's like a, the Warren Commission re- it's like the Warren Commission report where people are like, well, it says right in the Warren Commission report, this is just how it happened, <laughs> and it's just that same way with American terrorists. Well if you read American terrorist, you'll know what has happened. I've been told that recently. Like, it's just kind of absurd to me, but we'll, we'll start to see why that's absurd. But Mm -hmm. um, the reason the the authors say their motivation for writing this book was that um, McVeigh's public silence about the bombing had left room for the proliferation of quote unquote conspiracy theories And but Mm -hmm. unlike Oswald, McVeigh had a chance to tell his story and hoping to circumvent the specter of um, questions that surrounded the JFK assassination. They felt it was a public, I guess, duty (laughs) to to put out this book where McVeigh can tell his story. And so what they did basically was not even basically what they did. Was sit down across from McVeigh for days, and they also corresponded with him, and and they just basically let McVeigh narrate his story, and that was it. Like there's no real looking at, you know. They didn't go through case files that I know of. They, and by the way, I've been into their private archive. I was given access. I transcribe. I transcribe all everything in that archive because they don't let you make copies. And it's a small archive. And I'll tell you this, McVeigh, they left out in that book parts of the story where McVeigh maybe gives them a, kind of a different story. The, the whole point of this book is to put across the lone wolf version of the story period, the end. Um, McVeigh's motives were uh, for cooperating in this were a little bit weird. Beco- or ironic. So McVeigh, who had a lifelong fascination with conspiracy theories, and by the way, I'm going to use the word conspiracy theory probably a lot, and I use it a lot in the book. At the time, I liked the word and the term parapolitical, but it would have taken like a whole extra chapter <laughs> to explain what that term means. Um, yeah. so I use the word conspiracy theory, and i but i don't I'm not using it with a value judgment. Um, mm, yeah, but anyways, so McVeigh, who had a lifelong fascination with conspiracy theories, oddly wanted to leave a legacy behind that refuted conspiracy theories about himself <laughs> and the bombing and especially those he felt um were put out there by his former attorney and uh and someone else will talk about david paul hammer he knew that hammer was going to be writing a book and he and hammer was someone that was on death row with him and he wanted to make sure he got this legacy across now if there was other incentive for him to do this i i'm not aware of it but it may be that there was um i don't know if his you know, he got money and his and you know he left it to his family. That's all speculation. Oh goodness, I'm really, <laughs> really meandering here. Okay, so
0: okay.
2: <laughs> so according to these authors and and one of my professors at at one point called them transcribers. He, I went to UB University of Buffalo and I had a, at the end um, the chair of my dissertation committee. I was so lucky to hook up with him at the end, because I probably wouldn't have graduated if I hadn't, because you have to find somebody to work with. Oh, well, I should say, Aberration started as a dissertation, a, a doctoral dissertation. It, I always knew, I was always writing it as a book, but at one point it had to be a dissertation. So, but my professor, my chair happened to know <laughs> the, the authors, and he wasn't a big fan of them. And so what he said was like, he called them McVeigh's transcribers, basically. And that's basically, that is what they were. <laughs> um, but they said that I McVeigh mean, told them his story with such intensity and candor, and he held nothing back. And And they're like, we we <laughs> had to believe him, because it jibed perfectly with what the FBI said.
1: Oh, well, there you go.
2: yeah like they also make a a bit of a a big oops because they're like, and it jibed with witness testimony, which is just, uh, that's like, I don't know if they were joking or what, because that's just not true (laughs) at all ever. Um, And so they had no reason to question his honesty because it, it jibed with the FBI's account and the department of justice, you know, the prosecutor's account. So, and, and, McVeigh tells them like, he planned everything down to the minutest detail, including how he was going to get arrested and what he was going to wear. And and what he was going to wear, that might be true. But, like, he takes full responsibility. So, okay, so that's the first and the most influential Lone Wolf version. And I swear you are going to see this every time you hear on the news Or like, you know, on a a special, um, these um, April 19th anniversaries, it's always going to be this, this story. So the second book, real quick, (laughs) it's by two FBI agents that were lead investigators on the case, uh, John Hurtisley and Larry Tongate. And they put their book out in 2004. And get this, the title is called Simple Truths the real story of the <laughs> Oklahoma bombing investigation simple truths and that's the and they tell a, a real simple story <laughs> you know and just like the other authors they say like they had they they were they had a public responsibility to do this in order to to stop the inaccurate and irresponsible theories the conspiracy theories like so they had to put this out. Um and basically all they do is summarize the FBI's like um and the Department of Justice's case that they made during McVeigh's trial like that's all they did. And they say they have turned over every stone and followed every lead and all other theories <laughs> proven plausible. And so the reason I I went so you know, long into those two books was because Simple Truths is like an illustration of the way that the government's Lone Wolf story is like weirdly similar to McVeigh's story, but they both are defining, like both are, you know, the canon of Lone Wolf works. Okay, Lone Wolf, that's Lone Wolf. Oh, Mm -hmm. sorry. (laughs) Hey, just tell me like, if I'm meandering, you just
1: no, nah, I mean it makes sense to like you know lay out the lone wolf because like that is the dominant theory. So like, yeah, it makes sense.
2: Yeah, and and I want like if people if it if, you know I just if when people might like it might pop up on the radio or whatever on TV, wh- however it's going to pop up for them, I want them to think like, oh yeah, that's the lone wolf. Like, so, like yeah, I want them to recognize that when they hear it.
1: Yeah, because I feel like at least probably among my listeners and a certain part of Twitter, there's really like a push to realize that the lone wolf narrative is increasingly well that it maybe was always like this, but like it's hollow, like certain mass shooters or, you know, certain terrorist acts are like not as simple as a lone wolf, right? So like, I think there's increasing pushback in the good year of our Lord 2022 against that general framework in general right
2: this is amazing like i yeah yeah there is um you know i guess i had isolated for so long kind of self-imposed isolation hermitude i mean i have a social life but like as far as the stuff goes like really it's just like me my computer me going out into the field and then me emailing uh, jesse trying to do and roger charles you know that was it. Those are the only people I had. So like to go on Twitter and see this, what you're saying is that, that that this is happening. Like, first of all, I got to a point where I never really thought I would see something like that. I was like, oh, well, it's just a losing battle. Like not that I was going to stop researching, but like I had no hopes of um, seeing. And I, and what I love is that I'm seeing this across like a political spectrum. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: It, for a long time, it was that, you know, the people that were attracted to looking a little bit deeper at at the Oklahoma City bombing, and the, excluding the victims, family members, and the survivors of the bombing, because that's a whole different story, but just general people, um, a lot of that was coming from what you would call the right, and that's because they largely were demonized through through mcveigh and through the bombing story so like you'll hear like oh those crazy people they're the kind of people that would do oklahoma city Mm -hmm. and i would get that talking to people on i i hate using these terms left and right sometimes i mean i know there's a there's a truth to that there's also it's more complex than that but but to see like especially younger people that are marxists that are that are to the left picking this up like that mm. is amazing to me because it's telling me that man this case is so weak like this is that story that little story is just so weak like and there are super structures involved or, or there are structures involved that are relevant to anybody
1: yeah and they'll be they will be leveraged against various different groups yeah
2: all the time because they're yeah they're 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 operating procedures they're not they don't not necessarily political unto themselves or kind of if that makes sense yeah if it's going to be used against that if it's going to be used against the right it's going to be used against the left the same techniques the same
0: Mm.
2: techniques with the same objectives yeah but Anyways, that's, okay. So, I don't know how you're going to edit this, but (laughs) story number two. It's all good. Story number two. um, I call that the pack of wolves. And, well, I'll just start with the, there's kind of two variations on this, but the simple, the pack of wolves. So, if you think about, like, any kind of high profile, like, uh, assassinations, you know, let's just say (laughs) J.R.K. But also shooters a lot of times stories will emerge like where there's one shooter, there's always gonna be stories of like there was a second shooter or there was a there was another person involved mm-hmm. and and in all of those like high profile cases, um you'll see alternate accounts appear that aren't low and wolf low and low and wolf accounts um and so the pack of wolves. In this story you've got McVeigh, he's still in there, but now you have other people involved. Pack of Bulb's stories acknowledge that other people, sometimes quite a large group of people, are involved in the conception, the planning, preparation, funding, and execution of the bombing. Wherever McVeigh is in, in pack of wolf stories, there's other people right behind them or right around them. And so this creates a more complex version, genre of narratives, pack of wolves. Um, and unlike the lone wolf narratives, there there's distinct variations on this. So the other variation on the, a variation on the pack of wolves is one I call <laughs> the pack of wolves closely watched. And so in those stories, y- y- you have McVeigh and his conspirators, but now you also have surveillance. You have um, government agencies that were watching embedded, Either what you can you can have them watching the plot kind of passively. More often though, you have them embedded within the plot, either as agents or informants, Um, and those are wolves closely watched. So here, McVeigh is no longer the primary mastermind or villain. He is a villain, but he's not necessarily the mastermind. He never acts alone. Mm. Um, He's always one of several unidentified or unapprehended conspirators that help him, as I said, conceive, execute, plant, all you know that help him. Um, all of these other conspirators have kind of over time, come to be known as this composite character, John Doe 2. Uh, there were John Doe twos, like in the beginning of the case, and the book goes into that. like but there's also John Doe three, John Doe four. Usually they're just kind of when they're talked about impolite comedy, they're just they're just kind of put under this umbrella of John Doe Um now these now unlike again lone wolf stories, it, it does become more complex because there's different kinds of lone wolf stories. There's some people think or will purport like, oh, it was Middle Eastern terrorists that, that helped McFay. It was the Irish Republican Army. I mean, there's some kind of, I would say, fringy ones.
1: <laughs> when will the tyranny of Oklahoma free the Irish people?
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, Colombian drug lords. <laughs> right. But more often, for the most part, um, the 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 pack stories that you hear will say that the others unknown, the conspirators were... Usually neo-Nazi bank robbers or people within like the white power movement of the nineties. Um, sometimes the well, what is now called the Patriot movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it was called that back then, but it was also you know, like the militia, the militia movement. Um, but mostly, these others are like um, focused on neo-nazis
1: sort of the uh groups that are like very uh uh sort of held up nowadays as the current boogeyman du jour
2: oh yeah yeah and so i i want to say like i wrote this book well geez, oh my god i mean from the time i started writing anything i, I don't know i'm gonna say from start to finish is like 10 years by the time mm-hmm. i was done and i And this is 2016 like and and you have to understand i was so immersed in this and then everything that came after with having to fix the book like anyways when it's all said and done like it was like i was crawling out of a deep hole in the ground and poking my head up to look at the things going on around me and now we got trump like i had not been paying (laughs) attention um, to conventional politics at that point you know i I had other i had to do these other things
1: it's not that rewarding anyway no
2: no, it's not but i I was like holy shit what is happening around me like that and so yeah like and and now those groups you know have have once (laughs) more had a lot of attention put on them but so yeah the comparison you're making as to today's boogeyman it's very similar and and that's a whole other discussion of the similarities um even sometimes right down to the rhetoric it's just like the same but the rhetoric on uh, about them and by them both all of it it's it's you know you can see a lineage here but i'm just saying um i'm not i'm not mm-hmm. going after them i'm if they had been around in the 90s you know they they would have taken the brunt of uh, McVeigh's actions
1: mm. so let me let me ask you this so Pack of Wolves is the idea that like McVeigh had a network that he was working with and then Pack of Wolves w- closely watched is that he had a network and it was being surveilled and monitored by various potentially government actors
2: perfect look at that you just said it in like, <laughs> like less than a minute and I yeah yes that's that is it
1: yeah but people want to hear you say (laughs) I mean just all of it people want to hear all of what you have to say
2: but yeah no 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 that's perfect right I that is perfect that's exactly it and um so pack of wolves account for how over 226 people saw big bay with another person unidentified Mm -hmm. person in the months days or in the months weeks days hours leading to the bombing um you know so they it accounts for that so in that way it's like a little bit of a neater i mean both pack and Watchley and pack watchly Watchley. oh my god pack of Wolves closely watched um saw him so it accounts for that um and a lot of times in pack of or watched accounts it explains like how These others unknown, I'll call them the other conspirators, the John Doe twos, they're obscured from history because they're using disguises, decoy vehicles. Um, And this, uh, this explains why there's like all these sometimes contradictory witness accounts. Um, Mm.
0: and,
2: And those stories, well, for many years, up until about the the time I was writing the book they were always called conspiracy theories like something as simple as McVeigh had other people involved were called literally conspiracy theories and you were literally crazy if you brought it up um that's changed that changed as I was writing the book because of for a few reasons we can get to later if if it comes to it but So reoccurring themes include covert surveillance practices, most often by the FBI or ATF, the presence of undercover informants and agents, provocateurs throughout the plot um, who pose as true wolves.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And all while, you know, all while feeding information to their handlers. And McVeigh becomes part of a sting operation gone horribly wrong Um, And so, no matter, either they failed, so so there's culpability here beyond McVeigh and these other conspirators in the watched accounts, because either, if that's true, if they were watching the plot or the actors in the plot, they either failed to prevent the bombing um, by, by ignoring warnings, or they didn't fail. You know, the old like 9 11 lie hop, my hop. Are you familiar?
1: Yeah. And for the listeners, I guess I should. So the difference, right, is lie hop is let it happen on purpose. My hop is made it happen on purpose, right?
2: Yeah. And then I guess there would be a third with this one, which is like not let it happen, but oops, it happened somehow.
1: Good thing we have legislation ready for just such an occasion. (laughs) Mm.
2: (laughs) So, yeah. So either way, you know, government agencies, they either they engage in a cover up one way or another in this in these stories, because like during the prosecution. You know, they either distorted or withheld facts about the bombing to get convictions, you know, or there's something even darker going on. So those while while lone wolf stories have always and probably always will remain consistent and uniform pack of stories in the years after since 1995, they just keep becoming more complex. But that's because of more information that has been that that continues to come to the surface. Um, And that makes sense. Like when you have new information, you should then take it into consideration and change your understanding of something if that information is significant.
1: It's almost like the scientific method, (laughs) but applied to like history, right?
2: Absolutely. And when I was in school, um, one million years ago, i had a history professor that said you, you you can't even study history until it's 50 years out because information comes to light because you'll always have like in the aftermath of something like you conti- continuous information you can now then there's new historians that that will approach history and i do you know more recently than 50 but that always stuck in my head that like you know
0: mm
2: there's always, or there's not always, but a lot of times there's going to be more information that that wasn't accessible at one time that needs to be incorporated into understandings of an event or or series of events or whatever. But yeah.
1: Yeah. And like, I just wanted to also uh, say, like, you don't see this with like normal events. Like this is like a characteristic of like, these like deep pol- political events oh yeah like you don't get like all of these weird subterranean connections to like just like normal things that happen right no
2: probably i mean probably not like
1: pro- yeah, probably not, not
2: that not that i can think of no but yeah in a case where you have <laughs> lots of institutions and actors that have motives to to put forth a certain version of events you will then therefore also have like hidden information and information that might be classified until a certain period of time or until a certain person gets a mm-hmm. bright idea to do a FOIA and you a benevolent FOIA screener gives it to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Right. Especially in cases that involve, let's say, national security uh, whatever that means. So, number 3 you so now you have a third variation a narrative type that i called the guilty agent <laughs> and here macbeth isn't a lone wolf he's a pack of, he's in a pack of wolves but it goes beyond that but he's a guilty he's a guilty agent he's a witting or unwitting depending on the version of the story but I guess unwitting goes to experimental. He's a witting undercover operative for uh, like shadowy defense agencies in a national sting operation, which for one reason or another results in the bombing. Those are the the defining characteristics of the story is that McVeigh is working for somebody, basically. Now, whether he's an agent or he's an informant, it is is you know, variations in those stories, but so he's a he's a guilty agent
1: um sorry i don't know if this is jumping but let me ask you this too cuz like with guilty agent there's sort of like two interpretations right where it's like a, he's a guilty agent in that he didn't do his job to stop the bombing and then there's guilty agent that he wanted the bomb to happen right like in like there's a question of intent for, like, he's working for someone, but did he do his job or not? Is that,
2: yeah? Well, okay, so agent is, is his, he has agency, so right, he has agency, yes, guilty, yeah, in the sense that he's involved in this one way or another, even if he's told to be involved in this, he's involved in it, and that that almost makes it almost worse, or he, yeah, he's guilty not stopping it but he's also guilty for like being a tool of these you know whoever he's answering to yeah he's guilty all the way around but he's a guilty the, the guilty agent
1: that makes sense
2: so the guilty agents stories Those kind of were appearing really soon after the bombing in the genre of what people would have been at that time called conspiracy theory genre. Some of those works you would now just refer to as parapolitical, which is a better term, but that wasn't the term that was being used back then. And some of those works that came right after, they asserted that the federal government or somehow were responsible for the bombing. And the, the motive was that after Waco and Ruby Ridge, they needed a way to demonize the Patriot movement, and more importantly, to pass anti-terrorism legislation that would expand the budgets and powers of, of the various agencies they would benefit and that would get these budgets. And so rather than espousing a unified theory of the bombing, like, oh, McVeigh did it, period and the exact workings of the bombing plot they they have different conflicting elements like those are not set in stone the only thing really in the guilty agent that's set in stone is that Tim McVeigh is working or answering to somebody working for or answering to somebody mm. there's somebody higher or something here higher and I don't mean like God but like it <laughs> a bureaucratic agency or a shadowy network within a bureaucratic agency um, calling some shots. So by claiming that the bombing is the result of a conspiracy, but that the conspiracy, the details of it aren't yet known, they believe that covert state actors have have played a part in this carnage. Uh, Guilty agents, depictions of McVeigh, they they continue, obviously, to proliferate online and in self-published <laughs> books. Um, I'm not laughing at self-publishing. I'm laughing at some of the more yeah. silly books that I've seen come out. And what so here's what's interesting. Is that the guilty agent story, and this is one of the things I discovered in my research, was that mcveigh himself is the first person to tell that story the story of Mm. him working for somebody in the government but in fact mcveigh is the first person to tell all the stories the narrative types
1: which is so interesting yeah (laughs) it speaks to why you can't just trust american terrorists for one thing
2: exactly not
1: that that's in that book but still exactly
2: now you know I guess to give them some credit, you know, the archives I the archives I was going into weren't available to them yet because they just weren't. You know, there were some materials they didn't have, but there was enough for them to question what McDavid was telling them. Plus, you're, you're dealing with the, the worst like domestic terrorist ever.
1: But probably he's telling the truth, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, but you got to believe him. So, you know, it's just that's silly. So that's the guilty agent. And that really, it's hard to, other than just to say Tim's working for somebody, that's really where the the nuts and bolts and and some of some of the details of the story it, that starts to sound a little less crazy, anyways. Then you've got, and this is, you know, this is the this is a <laughs> It's the dark one, but it's also kind of the fun one, but it's also really the highly disturbing mm-hmm. version is the experimental wolf. So you've got the experimental wolf, and that it really breaks with all other understandings of the bombings or narrative types because it it takes away Tim McVeigh's agency or and so tim mcveigh the ultimate conspiracy theorist of the 1990s or the most notorious anyway is is rendered a victim of a conspiracy he himself is a victim of a conspiracy he's a guilty agent lacking agency he's an automaton um he's being controlled like later not controlled uh, uh, like not controlled like given orders, but, like, literally controlled in his mind. He's basically Generation X's Manchurian candidate. Um, He is the victim Mm. of of experiments, um, sometimes mysterious technologies, um, and the villains in this story aren't Tim McVeigh. It doesn't usually come out as a big villain in experimental wolf stories. The villains are these, like, mad scientists that you know operate in in uh flat budgets and in dark rooms and oh i i thought <laughs> Shit, i am so sorry i thought it would be easy for me to do these narrative breakdowns but it's i'm like talking myself into knots
1: let me let me ask you this with experimental wolf so in the range of theories with experimental wolf Would you say that there are varying degrees of culpability with McVeigh?
2: Yes, because you could have experimental wolf um, stories where as simple as he had a tracking chip, but, you know, and and then this still leaves for the most part his mind intact. Mm -hmm. You could then, like, to the next extreme, like, say he was basically a, a program robot just um, <laughs>
0: you know where
2: <laughs> yeah like where his whole entire agency is taken and I, I'm talking about yeah in the realm of these stories in the range of these stories so there's different there's a there's a spectrum of experimental mm-hmm. stories and in some e- but either way I think there is a, a element or or in all of the variations of experimental stories. There's a there's a sense in which like he has been victimized because at some point he does not consent and something is done to him and to his body, um, even if it's as simple as simple as a tracking device. Like that's without his consent. So there's less agency, anyways, than in all the other stories. Um, And they they do tend to emphasize this powerlessness over over what is happening to him, which, Mm. so the last, before he dies, he leaves a letter or a note, his final words are really a written statement, and it's a poem. And he says, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. But in experimental stories, he absolutely has not been the master of his fate or the you know, his own captain. And I think experimental stories, even if you dismiss them, even if you're to say like, okay, well, that's you know bullshit um, and that's crazy, they're still important because they come from somewhere. They've Sprung mm. up in public consciousness for a, a, a reason, and it's a really good fucking reason. And it's because of actual mm. <laughs> misdeeds, uh, medical, psychological um, misdeeds that have been perpetrated on unwitting victims. And, and I'm sure all of your listeners, that's not going to sound crazy to them.
1: Yeah, you're in good company here for not recoiling from the idea of the experimental wolf.
2: That's such a relief because, you know, imagine just I don't know, you're just talking to your next door neighbor and you're like, and they're like, oh, what is your book about? And they're like, well, and then there's these stories and you're always just kind of (laughs) testing the water, like watching, like, uh, what are they backing away right now? Are they like, what's going on? So so it's kind of a relief to be able to to talk in a in an environment where you know I don't have to be extremely careful how I freeze something, I guess.
1: <laughs> You're talking to an audience that will know who <laughs> Dr. Jollyon West is.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Oh he's a what a guy. <laughs>
1: Let me, let me ask you this, because I feel like with each of these theories and in the order that we discuss them in, right, there's so like, there's like a mountain of evidence to suggest that the lone wolf narrative is at best not the full picture.
2: Oh right? yeah. Yeah.
1: And then the pack of wolves theory like seems to be at a minimum like objectively true, right?
2: Object- Right, objectively true. I think you guys call it a a, a limited hangout, though, almost. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And then closely watched is just also like you can literally prove that. Yes.
2: Oh yeah, and it ha- well now right yes, and you could even back in in the beginning you could, but yes.
1: Yeah, and then mm-hmm. guilty agent. Although maybe we cannot prove prove it. That seems extremely plausible. Right, given the evidence
2: in context once all the things are laid out mm-hmm. you at least have to consider it there's and that's again i'm not i know i'm not talking to my neighbor not not that i love my neighbor but you yeah. know i'm just saying yeah. neighbor as a, a pretend person but yeah in context but and that's important, is that there, the um, context of this. And, and by the end, it doesn't sound crazy, and it sounds possible, mm-hmm. and it may be probable, and it can all it could be kind of both, like
0: yeah, it, yeah. it can
2: be guilty agent and watched wolves at the same time in a sense.
1: Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask. Because I feel like pack of wolves closely watched does seem to be the case plus maybe guilty agent plus some elements of experimental wolf it seems like the bottom three narrative types
2: yeah they're all they're
1: all happening right they are and it's just easy to have this narrative to break them out into categories but they're all happening at the same time
2: yes they're simultaneously happening and so it's not like it has to be one or the other like one doesn't except for in the case of Mm -hmm. lone wolf one does not exclude the other. It, it you know, they can work yeah. together. Um, and even, like, if you were just to say, look, McVeigh himself thought he was working for somebody because he was, like, Froot Loops. He still thought that. And so that's still happening.
1: Yeah. Now, I forget who said this. Oh, Lord. I should have. Well, I didn't think of it until just now. But, like, uh, no, it might have been, oh Lord, Peter Lavender or something, but like, yeah, I think it was, <laughs> I think he said that like a slight conscious, intentional fracturing of the mind can sometimes be beneficial. I don't necessarily agree, but like, I understand how like, you know, you go to work, you have like your work mode, you come home and you have like your family life mode. So like there, maybe there's something to that in the most general sense, but like, yeah, I do really like that these narrative types break out all of the information and put it into different categories, so you can almost like put down the like the fringe thing and pick up the informant thing. You can, you know, put down the informant thing and focus on all the Aryan Nations stuff. You know, like I I really do like that there's this like framework because I find it to be so much more helpful than just like a constant bewildering array of information coming at you. Oh
2: my God. Yeah, for sure.
1: And I was going to say, and I know certain works have maybe approached this, but like when I was initially getting into the whole JFK thing, I wished that there was some sort of work that did this for Lee Harvey Oswald and not for nothing. Do you compare Timothy McVeigh to Lee Harvey Oswald at length? So how did this framework come about?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, and by the way, I did, but I I wasn't the first. He immediately and um, mm-hmm. um, forever was compared. But but then, you know, it turns out there are parallels here. But um, so when, you, like, we had or initially, we were talking about doing this, like me coming on your show, you, you had, you know, asked, well, how did the framework come about? And I had to think back, like, Shit, how did the framework come about? Because it so I so I I actually had to go back like through my files and papers and and like when did I get this? Like at what moment in time? Because it it wasn't always there at first. Um, I was just had a mass, a a total mess like a a mountains, not mountain ranges of information, like stacked and piled, like so much information. But that's all it was. It was like a bunch of facts everywhere. And, and um, at first I started, I, I compiled, even before I like went into the field, like put my feet out, like uh, when I was just survey, like reading obsessively, everything publicly available to me, I started to make a timeline. And then I, I kept making this timeline that would become hundreds, hundreds of pages long. But, um, and so I would, put everything in a timeline, a multi-sourced, and that showed me where contradictions were um, between mm. sources. And that was that was helpful. But there was still like no way, as far as if we're talking about writing it and conveying it to other people to, to kind of bring it all together in a in a in any cohesive way. Um, I mean at that point, I think in my mind, I probably use the term "lone wolf" because that was a, you know, that's a term that's used. Um, or I might have thought mm. of it sometimes as official story. When we talk about experimental, back before the framework emerged, I would think of it as M.K. McVeigh. Like that's how I used to file things. <laughs> um, but like around 2010, I, w- I was still in my course, or um, before I was allowed to write my dissertation um and my professors at that point suggested i read a book called patty's got a gun patricia hearst in 1970s america and hmm. if you're like looking for you know like parapolitical stuff it's it's not in there although West makes an appearance in that book and so does Warren and some other mk doctors but um This book is kind of more about how Patricia Hearst has been conveyed and, um, you know, and her agency and and that. And they break her down into types. And I'm like, okay, that's that's interesting, Hmm. like an interesting lens.
1: That would work really well for her because there's similar issues, I think, at play. That's very interesting.
2: Yeah. Now, I don't know. Why my I think my professors wanted or my professor wanted me to, to look at, it. I have to assume be, before that reason, not not that he knew I was gonna come out with this framework based on it, but that just so that I could see how this happens. I, I don't know. Anyways, I was told to read that book. That was, I think, what from what I can identify, one of the first, like where the framework starts to emerge. Then I my other professor told me to watch Errol Morris's thin Blue line. And the purpose of that mm. was to see how conflicting stories can be presented in one package and put in dialogue with each other. Um, have you seen Thin Blue Line?
0: I have. yeah,
2: so you know, Errol Morris, of course, you know, there you have there's criticisms of him, but as far as his ability to take conflicting stories, and especially in thin blue line, there's this milkshake scene where officer drops her a police officer drops her milkshake, but it then it goes back and it shows it through different angles,
1: like a rushmon type of situation
2: exactly. And so you know, I wasn't in film studies, but I think my my Without saying it, my professor—they probably just wanted me to get a grasp on like how you can deal with conflicting stories. So then, then that was that was about 2010. Then the next thing, um, I was asking myself like where were the like where are these stories coming from? Like there was always stories about Jolly West. And that was like really my pet thing. Like that was, that really got me excited Mm. um, during the research, but like, well, where did they first appear? Like who, where did these stories originate and who was telling them? Um, Still, I didn't quite have the framework I have now. I was like still really gathering information obsessively and (laughs) didn't have to package it and present it uh, coherently yet. But um sometime around twenty twelve, um I read a law journal article about mens rea, which is the culpability in, in a legal case that a defendant has. Mm-hmm. And through that I learned of this term caput garet lupinum, which means let him wear the wolf's head. And and that is a old English writ of outlawry that if you were mm. if you were given that designation capable Garrett Lupinum, you were outlawed to like, the outskirts of society. You could be killed on sight. Uh, you held no legal rights. And, and you by all measures were basically an animal. Um, but I that really got me thinking like about wolves. <laughs>
1: the wolf's head and that's like that's so thematically rich too because like he was in, to some degree involved in like the like almost like sovereign citizen world where yeah. they love to talk about like english common law and oh that's so interesting
2: yeah that's you know what if i had thought about that back then i i it's been a while, but yeah that is so the wolf but it also is like how do we as as a c- culture as society as as people like um take an individual and and make them into an animal make them into like reduce them into an animal Mm. and you know now they've got a wolf's head um they've been outlawed they're banished from polite discussion um they become untouchable um Mm-hmm. and so like i'm like oh shit wolf and so then i started to think about everything with wolf with wolf heads um which someone's gonna make a meme on, sure um <laughs> i really took a shine to this concept of the wolf's heads and then like well how does that work with all uh, the cult conspirators oh they're a pack of wolves or you know and then i just wanted to keep that consistent that's where you get experimental wolf guilty agent Kind of diverges from that.
1: Guilty wolf sounds a little silly. I can see. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's like yeah, like Little Red Riding Hood or something. But so guilty agent came from a Nietzsche quote, um,
0: Mm.
2: and he says, "For every sufferer, instinctively seeks a cause for his suffering. More exactly, an agent. More specifically, a guilty agent." who is susceptible to suffering in short some living thing upon which he can vent his effects for the venting of his effects represents the greatest attempt on the part of the suffering to win relief anesthesia so i guess without getting too philosophical um,
0: Everybody needs
2: somebody to blame in this story. There's always going to have to be somebody to blame. Um, mm. And if and if McVeigh's a guilty agent, that means the government needed somebody to blame.
1: No, I like that, though, because like, basically where you choose to lay the blame probably says a lot about your worldview. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like Absolutely. for me, I'm inclined to place a lot of the blame on various institutions in society which directed mcveigh at various points right something like that
2: yeah yeah um in in all of these variations of these narrative variations there's there's heroes well i don't know if there's heroes but there's villains um -hmm. and there's motives and, and those those can be wildly different depending on which story you're talking about but yeah Let's say you're looking at a, a national sting operation that got like out of hand or something worse. Um, well, blaming McVeigh alone or even the people he associated with isn't enough. You have to like look at the structure this is coming out of or what, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that like the, um, scaffolding that helped this or did
0: this
1: yeah no for sure and like you know I wouldn't want to hide behind like the families who were doing a lot of research too right like personally like but I know that they are frequently coming to some of these conclusions
2: yeah they they were the first they were the first
1: not just conspiracy theorists right like a lot of evidence from people looking at this objectively without conspiracy theory you know mindset are coming to these conclusions is what i would say absolutely,
2: right? absolutely. i mean them the people that were in the thick of it right in the aftermath you know it was them and you know they're mm-hmm. very closely watching because they want justice because their children have been murdered their their sisters their brothers their husbands their wives or people that survived it they just watched their best friends and their co-workers get smashed in the rubble you know that they're so they're watching like and at first they had hope like you know they they believed that the government was going to do a thorough investigation and that and they hoped that justice and and just really soon they started to see like that, that things had gone awry that information evidence was, was being discarded and that this was all going to get put on Tim McVeigh and, and as much as they hated Tim McVeigh or, or maybe just didn't like him you know hate's a strong word I'd say a lot of them hated him some of them just didn't like
0: hmm.
2: him but they they wanted the full truth because these are their friends and family that died they so so yeah and those are called the oklahoma dissidents um and that was a term that Mm. the another writer had had come up with ambrose evans pritchard early early on but then there were investigative journalists um early on Mm. also like knowing that oh this is weird like why have they dropped the investigations into the John Doe twos?
1: Yeah, just a lot of weird stuff that just doesn't add up.
2: I would say that the counter, like what someone, a debunker might say, is like, "Oh, well, they're so traumatized, they have to, they have to make a a bigger story." But th- this is not true. Like, but you'll hear that. If they were so traumatized that they w- they just needed a story, they could have very easily accepted. Or, or someone might say, "Oh, well, it's just so big that you know they can't comprehend it, so they have to make it more complex." And I'm sure you're familiar with those types of arguments, but you know this is bullshit because
1: hmm.
2: uh, the bottom line is that the evidence is
0: there.
1: Yeah, you don't see comparable things happening with every single tragedy. Like, only when there's a bunch of evidence do grieving people start to think that there's a conspiracy. Yeah,
2: when there's good reason for them to. Yes. Yeah, but, you know, especially academics will, <laughs> oh my god, there's just countless. Like, uh, so many works, like academic works about terrorism or even conspiracy, which is, <laughs> I was fringed when I was in school dealing with this stuff, but now it's like a whole
0: thing.
1: A cottage industry.
0: Oh, sir Oh, yeah, it is.
1: Wendy, did did anyone ever send you that uh, quote-unquote disinformation expert on TikTok who created a very lovely triangle upside down triangle meme of like conspiracy theories, and that there were different categories, almost like a color coded, <laughs> and the top one was like anti-Semitic point of no return. <laughs> yeah. And she put, like, Bigfoot and all that stuff on Oh, really?
2: There. Bigfoot? Isn't that?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I have not seen that. You, you'll have to send that to me. Um,
0: I'll have to. I'm yeah. definitely
2: familiar with this um, mm-hmm. um, discourse, though, so, because you know, everyone's like, you'll half stutter. Oh, the, you know. <laughs> so <sighs> I guess I don't even need to explain that because you just laughed. <laughs>
1: Let, let me ask you this, Wendy. After researching and spending so much time working on conspiracy theories, do you feel more comfort now at the end <laughs> of this, or do you feel?
2: <laughs> oh boy! Oh no. I'm uh, No, <laughs> I'm always uncomfortable. But yeah, no. I mean, to me, that's a great question. Um, I would. I guess I'm going to say no. I feel disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> right it's not because this is easier for me right it's, no
1: yeah the two the two ideas are that it's comforting and that all the information adds up but no. like neither are true no
2: no no it doesn't nothing none of that's true and it would have been really easy for me to just like put out the same bullshit like let's do a paper on Tim McBay and how you know and lone wolf terrorism or or how horrible is the right that that would be what's easy and simple and probably wouldn't have kept me up you know night after night like feeling like i was in the twilight zone
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: yeah good question
1: You have just finished listening to an episode of Program to Chill, where I interviewed Wendy Painting. If you're listening to this, please consider donating to Wendy's coffee. What is a coffee? It's like a GoFundMe, but spelled differently. For the cost of a cup of coffee, or more if you're so inclined, you can help Wendy continue her research so we can get that second book out sooner. You can find that link in the show notes. Please support independent researchers like Wendy. And if you're listening to this on the free side, you can subscribe to my Patreon to hear these Wendy Painting interview episodes sooner than the weekly release date, as well as a whole back catalog of interesting content to make your chores easier, or to make your shitty job more tolerable. Guaranteed. Thank you, God bless.